Welcome in, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me today. In this episode, I'd like to discuss a theory, philosophy, uh, way of being and that's uh, really close to my heart, which I call or is related to uh, making our life our meditation cave. And, um, you know, this is something I've explored in lots of different ways uh, in my Dharma practice and in, in my life as a meditator. And I'm guessing uh, for those of you out, out there who already have a meditation practice, uh, this is something you've explored. And so here I'd like to share some ideas about my experience of relating to life as a meditation cave and also um, some of my experience of, you know, actual meditation caves and uh, time in retreat and, and how that might apply to our discussion and exploration of this. And so before we jump into the topic today, if you're a regular watcher of my YouTube channel, please uh, subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on Spotify and iTunes, feel free to check out uh, scotttusa.com where I have more episodes on there as well as uh, blogs and all kinds of um, content you can check out. So without any further ado, uh, let's talk about uh, life as the meditation cave. So for some of you out there, uh, this might be kind of an obvious one. Uh, for me, um, I'm maybe dense or, <laughs> you know, stubborn. And so I've had to explore this in lots of different ways. So I'd love to share a little bit of my background working with, uh, you know, both life metaphorically as a meditation cave, but actually the the literal meditation cave. So when I first encountered Buddhism um, in my early 20s, um, I encountered a form of it. And what attracted me to it was was this idea of the, the yogi or yogini on the mountain. The idea of the recluse who's, you know, gone away from the world and who goes into, you know, a literal meditation cave and or some kind of meditation hut or or cabin and um, sits with their mind and sits with their practice. And at the time, I think I really had no clue of what that actually meant. It was it was a fantasy. It was some idea of, you know, books I had read on on yogis. I think the first book I read on yogis was Autobiography of a Yogi from Yogananda. This kind of sparked my interest in Eastern uh, spiritual traditions. And then from there, I, I, I found the Zen tradition uh, of Buddhism and eventually landed in Tibetan Buddhism, where we have um, in the Tibetan Buddhist traditions or lineages, you know, lots of stories of uh, yogis and yoginis who are, you know, either monks or nuns um, or uh, these kind of mountain yogis and yoginis who go off from the... Um, the village and practice in the mountains and specifically uh one i'm thinking of which um is not just inspiring to me but inspiring to most tibetan buddhist practitioners is milarepa and so some of you might know of him some of you might not if, if you don't know of him i i recommend going and and um checking out uh the biography of milarepa there's a few translations of it these days and milarepa why inspired so many is because he went from not only just uh, an average human life, but uh, a human life filled with a certain amount of adverse adversity and um, how you'd say uh, like crime, <laughs> where to put it literally. I mean, he, he killed, you know, people when he was younger uh, out of um, jealousy, out of revenge. And uh, immediately after he did that, he had intense uh guilt and regret and from there because he he lived in in tibet uh in tibetan culture he could seek out the dharma it was part of the culture and he you know went to that as a means to work with his guilt and regret and 
After meeting several teachers, he met his main uh, root teacher named uh, Marpa, uh, or, or the Lotawa Marpa, because he was a translator who was going between India and, and Tibet at the time, um, and also had studied with um, really, really profound lineage masters uh, like Naropa, etc., in, in India, and had brought back not only the lineage of scripture and text, but also the lineage of um, experiential teachings and practice. And so, you know, Marpa was a major lineage figure at the time. Uh, though, you know, a householder, a family man at the same time, not a, not a monastic. Anyways, Milarepa eventually found him, and you can read in the biography what happened. You know, he went through these trials with his teacher as well as in his practice and eventually um, became a mountain-dwelling yogi who, who, you know, conquered space and time and, and suffering and became awakened in, in one lifetime. So Milarepa is this kind of... Uh, Buddhist rags to riches story in the in the true sense of the meaning uh, the the full richness of enlightenment where he went from rags and um, you know creating a lot of harm to actually attaining awakening in one life and um, Bilarepa primarily did that through through solitary retreat uh, through going into retreat in remote uh, mountains and really dealing with a lot of physical hardship in order to uh, proceed in his practice, in order to progress. There's also many stories in Tibetan Buddhism of all kinds of practitioners, to uh, practitioners in the monasteries also attaining high realization and awakening um, as a monk or nun within the community. Uh, there's also stories of householder practitioners, uh, practitioners um, of all walks of life, of all ages, um, attaining awakening, basically shifting their mind, transforming their mind enough through meditation to transcend suffering and to be able to benefit others in a capacity that most of us, you know, um, can't, <laughs> if I'm to put it frankly. So, so anyways, what's in common with all of these practitioners from Milarepa to, to other kinds of practitioners, uh, monastic practitioners, non-monastic householder practitioners, or different kinds of yoginis and yogis, um, they all worked really hard. You know, they all worked really hard at um, the practice of working with the mind, working with thoughts, working with emotions, working with how clinging arises within the mind, working with um, duality and how that um, binds us uh, to samsara or the circle of suffering. And so really that's what we can find in common, but they did it in many different ways. And the other day I was reflecting on, you know, our, our modern predicament as practitioners who are, you know, seriously wanting to progress in our practice uh, within this body, within this life. And we're often in this predicament where we might fantasize about the way other practitioners have done it, but it might not be available to us or accessible because maybe we have a family or we don't have the means to do that or um, just for where we're at right now, it's it's a little too daunting to look at, you know, giving away all our things and, and going to live on a mountain um, or even taking a step to to become a monastic and live in a monastery. And so, I did. I did this. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, to a certain extent, although I'm, I'm a pretty, um, uh, let's just put it, uh, I'm, a, I'm a, not a very disciplined practitioner. Um, but you know, I tried my best, and I really wanted to pursue the fantasy because, like I said in my early twenties, initially, 
this appealed to me, this sense of like, you know, I wanted to be like Milarepa. I wanted to be like the yogis I read about in Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, I wanted to um, become like my teachers. You know, some of my teachers have done a lot of retreat um, and a lot of personal uh, practice. And yet the more and more I studied the Dharma, I also saw the essence of the Dharma is something we need to realize in the mind. Um, our physical body affects the mind and how we use the physical body and our time and energy affects that. But the core practice is how we work with the mind. But knowing that, you know, how we use our physical body, how we use our speech, how we set up our life uh, does affect the practice. Because when it really comes down to it, no matter if we're uh, a monastic, a yogi or a householder, we all need to practice. There's there's no doubt about that. You know, we all need to study the Dharma. We all need to reflect on it and we need to deepen that. And for those of you who, who kind of aren't um, that, you know, far down the rabbit hole of the Buddhist path yet, you're just kind of uh, meditating on mindfulness meditation or something else. Even then it applies because we're there for a reason. We're there, you know, to deepen that. We want to um, use meditation to benefit our life. And it takes effort. It takes time. It takes practice. And this is the one thing a lot of us don't have in the modern world because we fill our time with lots of other things. So this is one challenge I want to address. But anyways, back to my story <laughs> real briefly, just to share it with you. So um, around the age of 20, I wanted to become a monk. And I had talked to my teacher, Lama Zoparimbashe, about it. And he advised, uh, yeah, you can do it. But, you know, there were some obstacles that he saw, mainly, you know, because I was in college at the time in music school. And so, you know, I was graduating and he saw some obstacles coming up, which, by the way, they did come up around those times, which is, you know, I wanted to tour with the band and I wanted to uh, date and, and have partners and all that. I mean, I was 23, right, you know. So I decided to wait when I was when I was 20, 21, when I first talked to him and I decided, OK, this maybe this is something I'll do later in life. And uh, after that, I did I did tour. I, I'm a drummer, so I, I toured with some bands, and I got really interested in recording engineering, and I explored that. And I, um, yeah, so I eventually ended up working for a recording studio in San Francisco. I moved from Boston to San Francisco and just pursued that. You know, I worked some part time jobs while I was building up my work, and uh, eventually was able to to transition full time into being um, a recording engineer, uh, producer, and mixer of people's records. And it was great. I really enjoyed it. Creative, fun. And I would, you know, do some retreats when I could. My teachers would come to town in the Bay Area and I'd go take teachings with them. I had my daily practice. Um, but I was also, you know, pursuing a 20-something life in San Francisco at the time. And so, um, you know, there were a lot of distractions. There were a lot of things kind of taking me away from my practice. I think at the time I felt this duality, like my practice was there and I felt this need to deepen it. And I, as a Buddhist practitioner, I also felt this need, like there's this potential of mind. There's this potential that I, that I read about, that I studied, that I saw in my teachers and, and, and some Sangha members that I wanted to, to grow. And then there's this division where there's this other part of me that just wants to have fun, you know, enjoy life, et cetera. And, you know, this takes time because that sense of enjoying life, you know, eventually we have, to, we have to ask the question, what is really enjoyment? What is truly enjoyment is, you know, just spending our time in pursuits that are pleasurable. Is that truly 
And is that something that's going to bring lasting joy? That's really the question. So we explore that uh, in the Dharma. We, ex we explore that primarily in the renunciation mind teachings. But nonetheless, I think for all of us in the, in the modern world, when we're not going to ideals, but going to practicality, again, this theme of the meditation cave being <clears throat> here and now in every moment, we need to look at, at, at our pleasure. We need to look at our pain. We need to see, well, how do we work with that? Is chasing temporary pleasure uh, going to bring me lasting joy or not? So we do need to question that eventually. Otherwise, things don't change. We just kind of stay stuck in our habit patterns. And our practice doesn't necessarily progress um, in the way we want it to. So anyways, a little, little sidebar, but back to the story. So, so I did this throughout my 20s. And then around age 27, I did a, about a three-week retreat with a, a teacher of mine on the East Coast. And um, something just transformed in that retreat. It was a very powerful uh, purification retreat, a very powerful retreat in general. And by the end, I was pretty sure, you know, the life I was leading was not going to lead me to what I wanted in relation to my Dharma practice, in relation to growing it. I felt some shame, I think, even at the time. Um, and so I proceeded to, to seriously... Uh, seek out becoming a monk like I like I wanted to do when I was 20. And so I asked my main teacher, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, again, and, and this time it was like, it was it was more than a yes. It was like a hell yes with robes, meaning handing me robes. And he said, and then we made a plan. Okay, go do it this time of year, um, either with this teacher or if you can with the Dalai Lama. And so a year later, I was able to, you know, close up all of my um, my business um things. And I went to India and, and became a monk with the Dalai Lama, a novice monk, what we call a, a Getsu in Tibetan. And um, this requires a whole nother video, but there's a lot to say about that. There's a lot of um, things I would share to those of you aspiring to be a monastic as uh, mistakes I made that I would recommend to avoid if you want to stay a monastic. But anyways, um, I was also just following the advice of my teacher who recommended to go to retreat. So most, most people, when you become a monk, in the Buddhist tradition, most people, they you, you do that to enter a monastery. You don't just become a monk and then go off back to your house. You, you leave your home and you, you enter the community. You enter the, the Sangha of ordained practitioners. That's mostly how it works in Asian Buddhist traditions, which I think is a good idea. So it wasn't completely off the rails because I was following my teacher's advice. But nonetheless, um, I also wanted, you know, he happened to give advice that I liked, which is, you know, I wanted to go into a retreat. I wanted to sit in a cabin in the woods alone and dig into my 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 mind to work with the Dharma, to apply it to practice. And so that's what I did. And, um, you know, I was so excited. <laughs> I, I uh, He hooked me up with a retreat place in California, just very kind, and a place where there was a caretaker because there was other people in retreat. So all we had to do was was meditate. You know, we had to have some sponsors to support our practice. And then the caretaker every two weeks would, would get groceries. And that's all we, we needed to do. It was very simple. But coming from a new monk, you know, only a monk for about three months, and coming from a very active um, householder or lay life, um, it was like, I, I can't describe, you know, I was so excited. I was like, I had a lot of fantasies around it that, I, you know, and I was going to make quick progress in my practice and all of that. And I just remember after the first week, just like hitting a wall and hitting that wall hard in the recognition that 
uh-oh, like, yep, my, <laughs> my mind came with me, you know? I changed my clothes. I changed my attitude. You know, we change a lot of things when we take monastic vows in the Buddhist traditions. Um, changed my hair, you know, shaved my head. And I changed my, um, my, my intentions, more or less. And then also going into retreat. So kind of like two big things at the same time, you know? Because not all monastics go into retreat. A lot go into, like I said, a monastery or a study program. Anyways, so yeah, I hit that wall. And I continued to hit that wall for um, three years. And this was over the course of probably like, you know, I would do like three to four month retreats, um, like two of those per year, maybe three sometimes. So, you know, like half of the year, a little more than half of the year in retreat. And then I would come out to take to take teachings. And this was per the advice of, my, of Lama Zopa at the time, who unfortunately has since passed away. But uh, that was his advice. You know, you know, you don't have to be super strict. You don't have to be like rigid about it. Go take teachings. You know, you're, you're still learning. So go out and take teachings and then come back to retreat. And so I did that. And in those retreat periods, it was really hard because I was, I was alone and I had this ideal that I should be very austere and in silence all the time. <clears throat> and yet around me in the, in the, <clears throat> in the retreat community, there was monks with a lot of knowledge and experience who had been in retreat for some, some of them, three, six, eight years. And, you know, I wanted to meet with them. So some of the retreats, I, I made it a little more loose where I would keep my sessions. But once a week, I'd have tea with one of the monks or a meal and we would chat if they weren't in retreat. And then some retreats, I was really strict and I didn't see or talk with anyone. And they were really hard. They were very isolating. Um, there was elements of my psychology that wasn't ready for that. And yet um, they were very fruitful. You know, I was able to work with the Dharma and, and connect with it in ways that I'd never had up until that point. And so um, it was kind of this, um, how do you say, this imperfection that ended up being um, such a useful part of that experience of, of being able to go into retreat. And then, you know, I left that retreat center after three years and moved into um, my other main teacher, Sonia Mache's retreat center. And uh, was a monk for another seven years, but during that time, I ended up traveling more and teaching more um, around the around the country, and so around the United States. And um, so I would I would try to do um, you know at least four months of retreat a year, if not more, and then the rest I would be traveling, taking teachings or teaching myself. And then you know things became a little less focused than when I was in the solitary. Um, forest environment but nonetheless still very supportive and actually in that way uh there was this element of integration of practice i actually am a big fan of if we're going to go into solitary formal retreat um try shorter periods and then integrate them so you go in for let's say a month or so and then you know if you have time a weekend's fine too though and a week is fine right but if you have more time going for a month or so then come back into your life and and check your practice you know see how it goes with your um relationships with family with work see how how you can integrate things so i like that that way of doing it for modern practitioners but anyways <laughs> it's not the intention of this video but it's coming up so so yeah so I had that experience, and then in 2017, um, I decided to return my monastic vows and move to New York City <laughs> and continue my teaching work while just being an everyday practitioner. 
And I knew at that point um, there was such precious advice I received from other monastic friends because I felt a lot of pain around returning my monastic vows. It wasn't like a woohoo moment, let's party. It was kind of, it was quite sad. I knew there was a large part of me that wanted to continue it. And then there was a part of me that knew um, it was, there was other things I needed to explore and I couldn't do it anymore. And I, and I, you know, just basic human stuff. I also wanted a partner things like that. And so, um, anyways, some advice I got from friends at the time, um, one of them told me, um, you know, you, you wear your robes around your heart now. It's very beautiful. Kind of similar to this idea of the, our life is the meditation cave. He said, you know, wear, you know, wear your robes around your heart, basically. It was advice he received from his teacher uh, when he had disrobed uh, or returned his monastic vows. And then, and then another monk uh, let me know, you know, just to rejoice, rejoice in all the effort I made and don't feel bad, like just continue on with practice. And it was his advice that was really core. Um, he was actually the monk I returned my vows to because we, we have different, you know, there's different formalities we do in the monastic Buddhist traditions. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little more um, respectful to return them to another monastic or, or it just has to be another person who can hear you. But basically, we return them respectfully, and they have to accept. And um, anyways, after he accepted, he shared that advice with me, you know, just keep going. You did a lot of work in your practice, just keep going. And it just gave me this fortitude that, okay, now, now my life is the cave. And also, you know, maybe later in life, the cave can also be the cave too. So that's kind of the essence of what I want to really share in this video. Sorry if it's too much about my story, but for me, it really... It's the context for what I'm sharing with you, um, where life as the cave is what a lot of us have to do. And the cave here, you know, the, the metaphorical cave is that place where we're working with our mind, where we're working with the Dharma. We're trying to deepen it. We're trying to grow our heart of bodhicitta, our heart of compassion, loving kindness. We're trying to connect with Buddhist non-duality and really cut through clinging, trying to cut through our suffering, trying to understand what, what binds us to pain and how to remove that. And from a Buddhist perspective, that bondage is something that happens in the mind. It doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. And so uh, once that recognition happens, we can recognize that it's the Dharma is dependent upon the mind um, and practicing with the mind. And of course, understanding the the path of Dharma and applying it to practice. I mean, there's we need, you know, often if we want to go deep, we do need to understand what we're doing and study to a certain extent. Then we need to put it into practice. And what does that? The mind, you know, working with our thoughts, working with our emotions, working with um, this fundamental confusion um, of how we reify ourselves in the world around us, how we, you know, take uh, for granted that maybe um, what's appearing to our mind is not exactly how reality is. And so once we start to question that, the whole thing opens. And once we start to cultivate awareness and an ability to uh, be present with mind, then we work with it, right? And we work with it and we fall. And we work, well, maybe I work with it. I'll say I, I work with it and I fall down. I get up, I work with it, I fall down again. I get up and I keep going. And that's the point, you know, what else are we going to do at a certain point? We grow a kind of passion for this a recognition that there's 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 it's the best kind of meaning we can bring to our lives in the world around us because as we're 
really cultivating that compassionate wisdom, that becomes the the compassionate wisdom we can extend to others into helping them with their own um, suffering, their own pain, and their own confusion to a certain degree. So in this way, I find it really helpful to think of my life and whatever's in front of me as the meditation cave uh, in the sense that my mind and body go wherever my legs go. And wherever my legs go, I need to be conscious. I need to be mindful. I need to be aware of how I'm working with my conduct, working with my thoughts, um, how I'm relating to my sense of self in any given moment. And of course, in the Dharma, we have so many practices to work with. Uh, for any of you who are interested in traditional Buddhism, there's so much. For those of you who are already practicing it, you know what I'm talking about. And so whatever practice we're working with, that's what we work with in the moment. But the basic thing is to be present with mind. The basic thing is to not allow our mind to fool us, you know, to allow our mind to spin stories and projections that take us into our afflictive emotions, that take us into anger, uh, further clinging attachment and, and misperception, right? So that's mainly what we're remedying here uh, through awareness and mindfulness. Um, when we become exhausted with trying to create a state in meditation, this is the maturity that develops, you know, where we recognize a state is just another form of pleasure. You know, however still we can get in meditation, however blissful we can feel, that ends the moment we get up and start walking around. You know, the moment we start getting up and walking around, our thoughts come back in. Um, our sense of self, you know, re reforms itself. And guess what? Our afflictive emotions and habit patterns are right there as well. So we need to affect those, right? And so again, I'm not going into like a lot of detail here on how to do that. Um, in some of my other videos, I talk about it. But also, if you have anything you want to ask me, feel free to reach out on my website. I'm happy to make some content on it. But, you know, we're so lucky these days. We have so much content on the Internet, so, mu so much content in books and different kinds of media to learn. But on top of that, we need teachers. That's important, too. So, you know, if you're really serious about this, seek out a teacher or, or many teachers. But anyways, um, the core recognition is most of us are probably most of you who are listening to this are householder practitioners. You have a job. Maybe you have a family. You're out in the world. And so we really need to take this seriously, uh, that we need to take advantage of every moment to practice the Dharma whether we're laying down, whether we're standing up, whether we're walking, whether we're with, we're with others, whether we're alone, whether we're working, whether we're at ease. And of course, for many of us, this requires a formal meditation practice because it's within that formal meditation practice, let's say in the morning, that we cultivate awareness, that we cultivate bodhicitta, that we cultivate boundless compassion, uh, that we cultivate a mind that's a little more clear and awake that then gets applied throughout the day. So, you know, if we have nothing to apply throughout the day, we have no meditation cave, right? So this is just something to think about. We need some kind of formal thing we're building. And this is where I would say the actual meditation cave is really useful, you know, going on retreat when we can. Um, maybe for, for some of us in, in the householder life, you know, working hard to to save money, live simply, and then retire early so we can do more retreat later in life. Or integrating it throughout our life, you know, having a means of livelihood where we can take some time away to go on week-long retreats or longer, right? And anyways, we're all just trying our best, 
and that's what I'm saying here. You know, we need to persevere in the right way. In a way, having aspirations and, and then maybe fantasies that inform those aspirations uh, is, is, is really important, you know, and, and I want to say that if we always have a fantasy that, you know, practice will happen later or we need these certain things for practice to happen or we actually need a meditation cave or meditation cabin, cabin to really progress, I don't know how healthy that is. But if those fantasies lead to aspiring to deepen our connection to the Dharma and the mind, then that's, that's positive because the aspiration is all we have a lot of the time. The aspiration to deepen our practice, the aspiration to wake up. Uh, from from our our pain and confusion and and the aspiration to help others uh, through waking up, this is really important. But we have to weed this out from fantasies because sometimes fantasies um, they they don't let us deal with the mind here and now. You know, they they leave us kind of wanting and lusting after something in the future. Now I'm just telling you this because I did that and and you know. Like I said, I was able to somewhat make that happen, but even then it was really challenging, right? And it wasn't perfect. You know, I made a lot of errors, a lot of mistakes, but of course, you know, could I say my practice would be where it is, you know, whatever that means, it's, it's not really anything to brag about, but you know, whatever, you know, little practice I have, um, would it be possible without having done retreat, like like formal retreat in, in a meditation place? Probably not. So I'm really thankful for that. But my point is, it didn't look how I thought it would look. You know, everywhere we go, whether it's in a solitary retreat or cave or just with our family, everywhere we go, we bring our mind with us. So the main thing is to cultivate the tools to work with the mind. And, um, you know, depending on our proclivities, those don't have to be complex. It really depends on the person, you know, but if they're simple, we need to apply them. And often simplicity is the most challenging. So for me personally, um, I've really benefited from, from kind of going into the Dharma a little more extensively, at least for me. Uh, uh, but, you know, that's just in relation to me. But it's helped because then when I'm working in more simple ways with the Dharma, um, there's context. I don't know. There's kind of like, it's relatable. It's not so abstract. And, you know, I know what I'm, why I'm putting it into practice. Sometimes I don't, well, actually all the time, I don't know the outcome of that, but we don't need to. The point is to engage the process. The point is to get it going and putting it into practice in a way that we can relate to it. And that builds on itself. I guess that's really what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that builds on itself over time. And we grow a practice. So I think that's about it. Uh, the main point is, you know, whether we are a full-time practitioner, whether we're a full-time mom, whether we're monk, nun, you know, I don't know, <laughs> CEO, we all have to find our way to penetrate the essence of the Dharma and to uncover our awakened nature. This is, this is our puzzle to figure out. And as many of you know, I'm a fan of, you know, traditional Dharma paths uh, because they have, 
lots of years of research and development, you know, just because something's old doesn't mean it's, you know, how do you say it? Wrong or misguided or not modern or how do you say, uh, uh, out of date. No, we update it through our life. We apply it to life and the mind is the mind. You know, I, I, I really believe that no matter what day and age it is, no matter what culture, no matter, uh, how we identify ourselves, our mind is the mind. Fundamentally, we may go through different issues and we may have different relationships to mind, but the, the fundamental nature of mind is the same. So the Dharma essentially applies to that. So for me, it applies to everyone, wherever we're at. Now we just need to find that way to bridge it into our life. That's not easy, right? That's the puzzle I was referring to. You know, that's the puzzle we all need to work out. So that's about it. Um, Thanks so much for for sticking with me to the end. If you did, um, feel free to reach out, really, if, if this resonated with you. And if it didn't, <laughs> feel free to reach out too. let me know why or or offer some other ideas of what you think. And um, as always, I, I'm here. I'm happy to support you in your practice. Um, you can always contact me via my website, scotttusa.com. And um, yeah, I think that's about it. So thanks so much. I really appreciate you watching, listening, etc.